Well, as Ben mentioned, I also have a hard time connecting with the Psalms when they talk about enemies so often. And like he said, it's probably partially because of this culture and the, this Western world that we live in and some of the freedoms and some of the protections that we have here in America where something like what is happening in Afghanistan is so far removed from my daily life. And so over the years, as I've read the Psalms, King David, David writes Psalm 143, he was in this environment where there were wars and there were rumors of wars and there were surrounding nations, surrounding countries pressing in on him. And oftentimes in the Psalms, when he's talking about enemies, he's talking about Babylon or Assyria or Persia or these other world powers pressing in on Israel, God's chosen people in the city of Jerusalem. And I just have a hard time connecting. You know, what is Canada going to do to us? Right? Not a big threat. I grew up half an hour from Canada, and never once did I feel threatened from the neighboring country, the neighboring nation. But for David's life, this, this was a reality. And so I'm wrestling through the Psalms, and when Ben and I were talking about this Psalm, I'm looking at it, and there's some great verses in here, right? Like some just great coffee mug verses. In fact, just yesterday morning, we were having coffee with a friend from church, and my wife Brittany handed her a mug of coffee, and it had verse 8 on it. A coffee mug verse, right? Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Great coffee mug verse. Or verse 6, I stretch out my hand to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land, therefore fill my cup with coffee. That'll quench my thirst, right? Some great verses in here, which we're going to talk about. But then, as I was wrestling through the psalm, I thought, okay, there's all this talk about enemies again. And I love how Ben brought out that in you know, the last month, hopefully we're more aware that brothers and sisters in Christ around the world deal with some of these pressures that some of us have had the privilege of being kind of sheltered from and protected from. But one of the things that's interesting about this psalm, Psalm 143, is that while many of David's psalms are talking about surrounding nations, political powers, threats to his very life, and threats to his very throne as king, this psalm, he's talking about a different type of threat. Now, it's not totally separated from the physical threat of surrounding nations and, and somebody trying to take his throne, but it's something deeper. It's something that each one of us has dealt with. It's an enemy of the soul. David isn't, isn't concerned in this psalm with Babylon or Assyria or the Persians. There's something deep in David's soul. There's an enemy pursuing him. Biblically, throughout the scriptures, the enemy is thought of as the world, the flesh, and the devil. So the world, that could be these surrounding nations, right? Like these, these external forces that press in on us individually or us as God's people to try and take to, to, to try and strip our lives of the very practice of worshiping God and being God's people and our identity as his people, right? The flesh, it's, it's this internal stuff. It's, it's the cravings of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, the pride of life. And then the devil, it's just we have an adversary, we have an enemy, the devil and his demons, these spiritual forces of evil which are out to get us. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6 that our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of evil in the heavenly or the spiritual realm. And in this psalm, Psalm 143, David is getting at something deeper than just kind of like the things that sometimes we get confused thinking they're our enemies. Right? Like, the president's not your enemy regardless of which president you voted for. 
right? And there could be some threats in the world from other countries. Even in Afghanistan, our brothers and sisters in the Lord, their greatest threat isn't the Taliban. It's the enemy of their soul. And yes, our enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. But there's something deeper here that David is getting at. It's a, it's a deeper concern, more so than political power or, or, or national like protection. It's this threat of the soul. Look at verse 3. David says, For the enemy has pursued my soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me, and my heart within me is appalled. There's something internal going on in David that, yes, partially it's this external force is pressing in on him, but there's something deeper inside his very soul that is going on. Verse 6, I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. There's something inside of me that longs for truth, that longs for God, that longs for my Savior. This enemy has pressed in upon me and he's withering and weakening and weathering my soul. There comes a time in the Christian life where we don't actually care about our comforts and our worldly freedoms because there's something deeper in our soul and we're worried about our faith. We're, we're wrestling with it. If God is real, why is he allowing this? Why is my soul being haunted and tempted and tormented and some of it is my own doing? I've, I've numbed myself to the things of God and I've participated in the things of the world and therefore my soul feels withered and weak or I've been pressed in on every side. Maybe the ideologies of the world have been so loud in my ear that I'm confused and I don't know which way to go. As I look at all of the sociological issues, all of the political issues, all of the humanitarian issues in the world, it's just too much to handle, and now it's been affecting my soul. And here's where David meets us. He's warning us that there's this enemy of your soul. Verse 7, answer me quickly, O Lord, for my, my spirit fails. He's not worried about his checkbook. He's not worried about career advancement. He's not worried about his house remodel. He's not worried about his dating life. He's not worried about his social media status or following. He's not worried about which side of history to be on and which political party or which, which theological camp to align with. He's saying, my spirit faints, I need God. I have an enemy far greater than the right or than the left or than this church or than that church or than this group of people who have lost their way or than this group of people who have lost their way. There's something that is endangering my soul. Verse 11, he says, For your name's sake, O Lord, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, you will cut off my enemies and you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul for I am your servant. See how David there's getting deeper? Saying there's, there's something after my soul. So church family, don't get caught up in your perceived enemies of the world. What we can learn from David here is that we need to go deeper and say, where is my soul in danger? What enemies? And, and I love that David uses enemy 
verse 3, he says, for the enemy has pursued my soul. Like we often think of like the devil, he's our enemy. But he also uses it in a, in a plural way. The enemies in verse 12, the adversaries in verse 12. There is an enemy, the devil, but there's also enemies, the world, the world's way of thinking, the world's systems, the world's ideologies, and the flesh. The cravings, the desires of my flesh. And here David, he's teaching us how you and I can battle for our soul against the enemy of our soul. Church, this is something that God has been teaching me as I was on sabbatical, spending a lot of time with him. He's just reminded me that I've got to check my own heart. Like David says, search me and try me, O God. See if there be any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. My enemy is not out there. And if we're wasting our time trying to find and identify and destroy our enemies out there, something is going to happen in our own soul when we're not careful to protect and guard our own soul. And so this morning, I want us to talk about four ways that we battle for our soul against the enemy of our soul. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Some of you recently have experienced the enemy of your soul. You, like, you know, you're, you're in tune with your soul. You're in tune with the Lord, and you felt the attacks of the enemy. You feel, whether it's the world, your own flesh, or the devil, trying to pull you away from God, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Others of you, you think you've got it all together. You're like, I have no idea what he's talking about. Life is good. Life is easy. What is this internal battle? Go a little deeper. Sit a little longer. Listen to God's voice for an extended period of time. Allow him, as David says, to search you and to know you. And you will become well aware of and acquainted with the enemy of your soul. And here King David wants to instruct us how to battle against this enemy. To save our soul. And so the first thing that we see, the first way that... Give away point number two. Sorry about that. The first way that, that we see David kind of battling against the enemy of his soul in order to save his soul is to acknowledge that we are susceptible and vulnerable. Acknowledge that you are dependent and that you are needy. Sometimes we go through life giving far too little thought to just how vulnerable we are to the attacks of our enemies, whether that's the enemy of our soul, whether that's the flesh, like our own flesh. Sometimes we give far too little thought about the things that we watch, the things that we say, the information that we take in, the food that we eat, the stuff that we drink, and, and the enemy uses that to weaken and wither our very souls. And here David is well aware that he is susceptible and vulnerable to the attacks of his enemy. He says, hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my pleas for mercy, he says in verse 1. He's crying out, God, be merciful to me. It's a position of weakness. He understands his own weakness. He is, understands his own vulnerability and his own propensity for sin. He says, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. David isn't approaching God, and he's not battling for his soul against the enemy of his soul by, by saying, I'm good. I grew up as, as a Jew, as an Israelite. I'm, I'm 
I'm one of God's. I'm chosen. I'm safe. I'm protected. I've studied the Torah. I know the Torah. I'm surrounded by God's people. I've been going to church my whole life. I'm good. I, I have all the answers. I know all the answers. That's all old news to me. No, David here is saying that there's nobody righteous. I am fallen. I am sinful. I am susceptible. I am vulnerable. The enemy has pursued my soul. Look at, look at how well acquainted he is with the power of the enemy and how the enemy just puts pressure on and withers your soul. The enemy has pursued my soul. How has the enemy been pursuing your soul? Endless time spent scrolling social media. Endless time binging Netflix. Getting caught up and concerned about the cultural issues in our world and thinking the way to solve those cultural issues are with new cultural solutions Political issues in our world, how do we solve those with the new political solutions? Power struggles in our world, how to solve that with new power struggles? Like, how is the enemy pursuing your soul? How have you maybe opened up the door to allow the enemy to wither and weaken your soul? And the passion and the fire and the love and the, the genuine relationship that you once had with God, maybe right now you're questioning everything. Maybe it's not because God is bad. Maybe God is still good. Maybe it's that you've allowed some bad influences. You, maybe you've allowed the enemy to pursue your soul. Maybe you've forgotten that you're susceptible to lies and deceit and that you're vulnerable in your spirit, in your soul. He has crushed my life to the ground. He has made me sit in darkness like those long dead. Therefore, my spirit faints within me and my heart within me is appalled. David is desperate. Verse 7, he says, my spirit faints. Verse 9, he says, deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. I have fled to you for refuge. See, David knows that he needs a place of refuge. He needs a safe place to hide. He can't just waltz into the world thinking, I've got the answers. I've been studying the Bible. I know theology. I know culture. I've read a bunch of blogs. I listen to a bunch of podcasts. I've read a bunch of books. I've listened to a bunch of pastors. I've got this. No, run to God, run to God, run to God, for in you I take refuge. I think far too often we give way to thinking that more information and more information and more information is what we need to solve the world's problems or what we need to bolster up our own confidence and our own beliefs. And in actuality, what we need is more intimacy with God, more intimacy with God, more intimacy with God. You don't need no more information. You have all the information that the world has to offer you in your front right pocket. If you don't have a smartphone, the person next to you has all the information that the world has to offer you in their front right pocket. You don't need more information. You need intimacy with your father. And David knows this. He says, I've run to you for refuge. Oh, how I want to sit in your presence. Verse 6, I stretched out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you like a parched land. And so church, this is how we battle for our soul against the enemy of our soul. It's not with more information. It's not by drawing deeper and harder convictions and stances and trying to identify who the enemy is and how we can take out the enemy's attacks. No, it's by pressing into God, saying, I'm vulnerable, I am susceptible, and therefore I need you. I'm running to you for refuge. God, give me life. 
Protect my soul from the enemies that seek to steal my soul. Second thing that we see David doing here. Boy, this clicker worked so well pre-sermon. Second thing we see David doing here is pondering God's character and works. So you admit that you're susceptible and vulnerable, and then you ponder who God is and what God has done. Look at verse 1. He says, in your faithfulness, answer me in your righteousness. He's acknowledging God's character. Now, we question that, right? Especially when our soul is withered, when we're being pursued by our enemies, we wonder why God is allowing this. Is God really good? Can God really be trusted? But here's what David is doing in the midst of his battle for his soul. He's acknowledging and verbalizing and pondering what is true of God's character. God is faithful. God is righteous. Look at verse 12. And in your steadfast love, God is a God of faithfulness. God is a God who is righteous. He is right. He is just. God has steadfast, unending, unbroken love for those who he has made a covenant with. So David here is pondering God's character, but he's also pondering God's work. Look at verse 5. It says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I love this word, ponder. I mean, David gives us these these three things to do, remember, to meditate, to ponder. And so we remember, we remember what God has done biblically. Like, think about the story of God and God, how time and time and time again, God has fought for his people and protected his people. And sometimes he has allowed his people to go into exile, into captivity, to discipline them and to show them his love so that they would return to him in repentance and rest. Right? But that's what David means. He says, remember the days of old. Remember how God has worked. Meditate on all, I meditate on all that you have done, all that God has done, and I ponder the work of your hands. And so you and I, pondering, it means to like get away. Some of you need to say no to the really good things that you're keeping busy with in life, and you need to spend some time pondering. If your soul feels withered and weak, as you battle for your soul against the enemy of your soul, you need to remove yourself from the pressures of daily life and spend some time pondering deeply who God is and what God does. Go a little deeper. Sit a little longer. And think and pray and meditate, open up the scriptures, and read. Not for information, for intimacy. God, I want to ponder how you parted the Red Sea for your people and they walked through. God, I want to ponder how you interact with me as your son or your daughter. God, I want to ponder your glories and your wonders. And so David here calls us to ponder who God is, right? Even when we're doubting it, even when we're wrestling it, we continue to proclaim what we know to be true, and then we ponder how God has worked through the scriptures in your own life. Think back through your own life. I was in a crisis here, and God delivered me. I had doubts and questions here, and God, God just met me where I was at. And then the lives of those who you do life with, 
This is one of the glories of being in a church family is when your soul is under attack and you're having a hard time pondering God's previous works, there's a hundred people around you who could say, God met me in this season in this way. God spoke to me in this season in this way. God showed me his faithfulness and steadfastness in this season in this way. Surround yourself with the people of God as we remember, meditate, and ponder who God is and what he has done together. The third way that we battle for our soul against the enemy of our soul is that we surrender to God's way, we follow God's lead, we walk on God's level ground. Now, surely I could have just taken one of those phrases. They're all like similar, right? But they're so good. Look at verse 8 and 10 with me. David says, Let me hear in the morning of your steadfast love, for in you I trust. Make me know the way that I should go. Surrender to God's way. Make me know the way that I should go, for to you I lift up my soul. Verse 10, teach me to do your will. Follow God's lead. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. I love all three of these. They're all, they're all getting at this idea that we need to, in humility, and like I said before, remember that we're susceptible and vulnerable. We need to remember that we're susceptible and vulnerable, and we need to surrender to God and say, God, lead me. I'm surrendering my will to your way. My flesh has its own will. I often like to play God, but I'm surrendering to you, God, and to your way. What you say is good and right and true, I am surrendering to that, even if I don't understand it in the moment. God, I will follow your lead. Show me the way to go, and then we walk on God's level ground. He makes our paths straight, and oh, how needed that is. Right, church family? How many of you have just, you've been so confused about the right way to walk in the past two years? The world is more divided than I've ever experienced it. Some of you have lived longer than me. You've lived through some things, and this is probably nothing compared to what you've experienced. So keep that in mind, right? Every generation has something that they're like, this world is broken. Yes, yes it is. And as we've experienced some of the brokenness of our world in the past two years, some of the desperation of our world in the past two years, it seems like the ground isn't very level, right? Or like it's shifting, always shifting. Who do I believe? What do I believe? What do I think? How do I think? Where do I turn? The church is divided. Oh, Lord, help us. The bride of Jesus Christ, at least in America, the American church is so divided right now. Every week there's stories of like churches splitting and pastors quitting and people running pastors out and churches are just divided because we, we, we've forgotten our level ground. We think our level ground is tied to some extra biblical ideas that we have about theology or about politics or ideologies. And here David is saying, in desperation... Teach me, verse 10, to do your will for you are my God. Be less worried about masks and vaccinations and elections and whatever, fill in your blank, and just, God, teach me to do your will. Let your good spirit lead me on level ground. I love this. David is saying that there is a straight way to walk. There is a level ground. There is a straight path and to find it. 
We need to consistently, daily say, God, I surrender to you. I want to follow your lead. I want to walk on level ground. We all feel this pressure to like try and have answers in our society right now, right? Or to at least seek out answers. And as a pastor, I can't tell you how, how much the past two years I've like tried to act like I knew something because I thought people wanted me to know something because they did when I have no idea what I'm talking about. Right? All of you feel this pressure. You read blogs, you listen to podcasts, you watch the news, and you think you know something about something, and sometimes we forget God. God, what's the, what's the level ground for me to walk? Our world is run by men and women and corporations and politicians and, yes, even churches that push big vision, aggressive growth, we ought to always be up and to the right. We're supposed to be confident leaders. We're supposed to advance our careers. We're supposed to grow our businesses. We need to keep progressing in society or we need to reform and conserve, conserve the former society, whatever you think is better. We always need to be developing something. We always need to be selling something. We always need to be buying something. And yet in our scriptures, and King David, the king of Israel, who is expected to advance and grow a kingdom and protect a kingdom, right? They so consistently talk about waiting on God. And I love this contrast. Like Ben pulled out, like the scriptures talk about waiting on God. Here, David is being kind of forceful. Verse 7, answer me quickly, O Lord. But he's not asking God to give him a big vision for the nation of Israel. He's not asking God to, to show him how they can conquer. He's saying, answer me quickly, O Lord, for my spirit's sake. I don't want to lose you and grow a kingdom. I don't want to lose you and grow a church. I don't want to lose you and grow my career. I don't want to lose you and, and, and grow my family. I don't want to lose you and remodel my home. I don't want to lose you in the midst of trying to put up with the pressures of the world and trying to walk in the ways of the world. I don't want to lose you. And so here David is saying, answer me quickly, O Lord, for my spirit is fainting. I need to be shown how to walk. In a world where there's so much confidence about how you should use your money, how you should invest in your career, how we should answer the social ills of our time, be reminded that the scriptures over and over again say, sit, wait, listen, follow God. You don't know where you're going. Daily follow God. And there's a promise here that as we do that, he will lead us where we should go. His good spirit will lead us on level ground. And here's the deal. God does reveal to us where we should go. On sabbatical, I spent a lot of time just praying and asking God, like, what do you want from me personally as your son? You're my father. You're my friend. Jesus said, no longer do I call you servants, but I call you friends. And we're also his servants, right? Even David in the psalm is saying, for I am your servant. But I spent some time seeking God, asking him to show me level ground. And I want to tell you, if we actually spend time pondering God's character and his works and meditating upon him, he will give you clarity about how to walk on level ground. I'm going to share with you just a little bit about what he told me on sabbatical because a bunch of people have asked me, like, hey, where are you going? What did God teach you on sabbatical? What do you think he has for our church? I'm going to tell you this. I don't know what he has for our church. 
He hasn't given me a great vision like, hey, by the year 2025, we're going to plant 400 churches and send 17 missionaries around the world to 100 different countries. A lot of churches do that. I don't know if that's good, right, wrong. I don't know. Here's what God has told me. God's level ground for me, your pastor, and even before I'm your pastor, I'm his son. This is, this is God's call to me, and I think by extension, our church. God's level ground for me in this season of life and ministry is to pursue the way of intimacy, authenticity, sincerity, and simplicity. Intimacy, authenticity, sincerity, and simplicity. Again, I'm just sharing this as kind of a sidebar to the sermon because a bunch of people have asked. and just cover it all in one shot, right? I preached on Psalm 139 last week. It was all about intimacy and authenticity. That God knows us intimately and he loves us intimately. And I'm convinced my soul needs more intimacy with God than it does information about God or the world. And I'm convinced your soul needs that. I, I, I think I would be, we would all be horrified if we took a poll of how many news things we listened to in the last week, how many podcasts we listened to, how many blogs we read, how many books we read about things of the world and about God, but how little time we spent abiding in Christ, sitting in intimacy with God, opening up the scriptures in a prayerful way, not a, not a studying way, and I'm not saying we shouldn't study the scriptures, but oftentimes we, we seek to like grow our head knowledge of God and we've withered our heart's love and affection for him. And so I'm convinced that God wants more intimacy for us. You've, you've been information, information overload. You don't need more information. You need more intimacy with your father. Authenticity. I talked about this last week, but just to remind you, Psalm 139 says that you are fearfully and wonderfully made. Stop violating yourself by trying to be somebody else or trying to be like somebody else that looks like a better Christian than you. God has given you a certain personality, certain habits, certain ways of doing life, and he wants to use that for his glory. All right, so grow in authenticity. And then sincerity and simplicity. I just want to share these couple verses with you real quickly because they stood out to me on sabbatical. And this is, this is where I believe God is leading me in this next season of life. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 12. The Apostle Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He says, For our boast is this, the testimony of our conscience, that we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, not by earthly wisdom, but by the grace of God, and supremely so towards you. Just so you know, as I'm the pastor of this church, I believe that that's a verse that I'm, that I'm applying, that my gaze, my concern, my care is primarily towards you. A lot of pastors' gaze becomes like writing a book, starting up a podcast, influencing the world, getting their voice out there. Thankfully, I'm not that brilliant, so that'll never happen here. But I believe the job of a pastor is to have his primary concern with the sheep in his flock. That's what Paul is saying. And he's saying that they were concerned with simplicity and godly sincerity. Right now, our world is filled with so much complexity and so much insincerity, right? So many sound bites trying to tear people down. It's just, and, and the issues of our world are complex. So, so complex. And here Paul is saying the role of a pastor 
And I think the role of Christians ought to be to live in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity, to push against the cultural pressure of complexity and answers and confidence and knowing where we're going or tearing other people down as we try to get there and to be more sincere and to embrace simplicity for the glory of God. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 8, just over on the next page. Paul here is writing about God's glory, God's strength being shown in our human weakness. I'll start in verse 7. He says, But we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God. This treasure is the gospel, the good news of Jesus. We carry it in jars of clay. That's our bodies. They're broken. They're brittle. They're incomplete. They, they're not a very great storage for this mysterious treasure of the gospel. But that's how God chose it. He He proclaims the gospel through us. That seems foolish. That's God's path. And Paul says, we, so we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, not to us. The reason that you're flawed is so that God gets the credit, not you. And then verse 8, he says, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Here's the key for me in this season of life and ministry. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Doesn't the complexity of the world and the complexity of the last two years make you feel perplexed? The Greek word for perplexed means to be at a loss. The Greek word for despair means to be lost. Here's what Paul is actually saying. He's saying, I'm at a loss, but I'm not lost. This is what I mean by simplicity and sincerity, that sometimes we're just going to be at a loss. We don't have to act like we have all the answers. We don't, we don't have to act like we know what the right way to address these social ills in our world are. Sometimes we're just perplexed. I can't tell you how good it felt for me on sabbatical to realize that I felt like I've had to have answers and to just say, I'm perplexed, I'm at a loss, but I'm not lost because I know my king, I know that I'm loved by God, and I know that I'm called to love God and love other people. I don't know the best way to love other people systemically, I don't know the best way to love other people organizationally, I don't know the best way to love people based off of what they perceive and what they want, what they need, but I know that I'm called to love And here Paul is saying, there's a time and a place when we feel at a loss, but we're not lost. There's this great phrase from a Need to Breathe song. It just came out a couple months ago on a new album, and it says, I just need room to be wrong sometimes. Amen? Do you need room to be wrong sometimes? Have you ever been wrong? Kind of. You've been wrong, Judah, a lot. We all need room to be wrong sometimes. And so my heart for our church, this level ground that I feel like God is calling us to walk on, is to give each other some grace. Allow each other to be wrong. Stop accusing each other and throwing each other down and and trying to label people in the ways of the world and just say, you know what, I'm perplexed. I'm at a loss about that, but I know my king. I love you. I love God. Let's get through this together. That's what I mean by sincerity and simplicity. Then one more, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. Paul writes to Timothy, the pastor in the church in Ephesus, a messy church. And he says, The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's my heart for this season of life and ministry. All right, and, and it's tied 
to Psalm 143 and that idea of just walking in God's ways. This, I'm convinced, is his level ground for us in this next season of life and ministry together. This is our way forward. Intimacy, authenticity, sincerity, and simplicity. And lastly, we battle for our soul against the enemy of our soul by declaring God's deliverance. We declare God's deliverance. Look at what David does here at the end. So verse 11, he says, For your name's sake, it's all about the glory, the fame of God, not self. For your name's sake, O Yahweh, capital L-O-R-D, that's Yahweh, the name, the personal name of God. He says, preserve my life. In your righteousness, bring my soul out of trouble. And in your steadfast love, I love this confidence here that comes in. You will cut off my enemies. And you will destroy all the adversaries of my soul, for I am your servant. David has postured himself as a humble servant of God. But he's declaring this decisive victory, this deliverance that God has for him. You notice in verse 9, he says, deliver me from my enemies. There's this prayer in the midst of the journey. God, deliver me. God, deliver me. God, deliver me. And then in verse 12, with confidence, he says, you will cut off my enemies. You will destroy the adversaries of my soul. David was looking ahead to a future day, to a promised Messiah. His soul was haunted. His soul was persecuted and pursued by the enemy, by the world and the flesh and the devil. But David had known that God had promised to his people that there was a coming deliverer, a promised Messiah. His name was Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ lived the life that we're incapable of living, a perfect life without sin, yet feeling the weight, having his soul pressed in upon by the enemies, the world and the flesh and the devil. We're told that Jesus was tempted in every way that we are. He felt the affliction of his soul. He felt the adversaries of his soul, and yet he was without sin. And here David is saying, you will cut off my enemies. You will destroy all the adversaries of my soul. And God fulfilled that promise by sending his son Jesus to live our life, to die our death, to overcome sin and death and the grave, and to give us new life. Amen? So when you and I do what Psalm 143 verse 5 talks about, David says, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. We can look back to the Old Testament and see how God worked and how God led his people, and we should do that. That should be part of our practice, considering God's faithfulness in the Old Testament. But primarily, when you and I look back, we look back to remember the days of old when Jesus walked among us, to meditate on all that you have done, how Jesus healed and loved and cared for and blessed his enemies. Then we ponder the work of his hands, how he stretched his hands out upon the cross, how nails were driven through them so that he could be crucified in our place on our behalf and overcome our enemies, right? Give us security of our soul. He is the one who has conquered the enemy of your soul. And so this morning, I just want to remember that by taking communion. The worship team is going to come back up and lead us in some songs of gospel responsiveness. And as they do, there's a communion packet in the pew in front of you.
when you feel led and ready as the worship team plays, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, this is here for you to remember, to ponder, or to meditate upon what God has done for you in Jesus Christ. This is a way that we declare God's deliverance week in and week out. When we take communion together, we are declaring that Jesus Christ has come to cut off the enemies of our soul and to cast away the adversaries of our soul and to make us whole. I'm going to pray, and then I want you to spend some time in intimacy with your Father, remembering who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you live the life that we're incapable of living, that you died a sinner's death that we deserved, that you overcame sin and death in the grave, and in so doing, you have silenced our enemy. Lord, we still battle with the enemy of our soul. We still feel the enemy rear his ugly head and tempt us and lie to us and try to deceive us, but right now we claim your victory. We declare your victory. We are reminded that those of us who are in you have victory. Thank you for breaking your body and shedding your blood in our place. We love you. Amen.